Hello, this is co-host Robert. What you're listening to is a rebroadcast of a classic Forgot My Dice episode that originally aired on the Freebooters Network. As always, this content is a year old and covers topics and news that have long since happened, but feel free to check out the show notes on ForgotMyDice.com, join our Patreon, and join us in the Forgot My Dice fans Facebook group. Enjoy the show. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. Welcome to another episode of the Forgot My Dice podcast. In fact, it's episode 19, the last of our teenage years. Aww. I know, but so much good stuff to come. I'm your host, Jonathan Edwards, and with me, of course, is the funded Kickstarter to my acquisition disorder, Mr. Robert Lundgren. How are you? Hello, hello. I'm doing good. Doing good today. A little tired. And, and weather's a little weird, so I, I'll, I will try to, cu- weird. I'll try to cut out all my snuffles, but I forgot to take some, you know some allergy meds before i came here so yeah here in central texas we've recently had quite a bit of rain and with the rain comes blooming and with blooming comes and central not just texas blooming, allergies. mold 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 yeah. blooms the trees bloom the one thing you can count on for from central texas is that uh, allergies will appear where none were before yeah yes yeah, swiftly. swiftly yes so anyway like i said i'm gonna try to cut out all my <laughs> but if i miss a couple i apologize in advance First off, let's go ahead and get to some announcements. And with episode 19, we are, in fact, on the final episode of our Patreon subscription drive. And in fact, this episode was brought to you by our patron, Scott. Hey, Scott. You have a real good shot of winning some stuff right now. <laughs> Indeed, you do. In fact, as it stands right now, you've got a 100% chance of winning some stuff. So let's see how the odds work out in the future. So as of when the next episode hits the internets or the air, I don't know what it is, whatever, when it comes out. Approximately two weeks from the release of this one. Give or take, yeah, give or take, depending on, on Freebooter stuff. We will take a census of our Patreon subscribers at that moment And we will randomly assign them a number like we did for our previous contest. And if they win, you get the Tomorrow Legion Player's Guide, Game Master's Guide, and Savage Foes of North America, all for the Savage Worlds version of Rifts, which is awesome. You get the whole set. Uh, Shipping is free in the U.S. If it's outside the U.S., we are going to hit you up for some cash. And luckily for us, Scott lives in town, so we can just go drop those off. That makes it real easy. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, but but if you join up right now, those odds go to 50-50, which are still real good odds. <laughs> so, of course, to join up, you just go to Patreon.com and search for Forgot My Dice, or you go to our website, ForgotMyDice.com. And there's a little P button. Yeah, I have an article up in the, the top thing that says patreon us or whatever i forget we, what it says. we appreciate anything that you can shoot our way every little bit helps it just helps us to cover the the expenses of the show which i mean frankly for a podcast are reasonably minimal you know you know shipping kaiju incorporated was significantly more expensive than i thought i thought it'd be like three four bucks it was like twice that <laughs> all right 
Well, moving on, let's go ahead and get to our uh, announcements around the website. And you had an opportunity to go to ChupacabraCon, which yeah. is a local convention. Yeah, yeah, me and, and the writing partner, actually. We both went. And one day, uh, you were supposed to go on Saturday with yes, me, but you couldn't. Unfortunately, I had some family uh, items come up that prevented me from going. So I took my five-year-old instead, and she was like the belle of the ball. Anyway, we'll get into it later. We were going to talk about this podcast, but then, you know, we scored a sweet interview, so we'll have to push it to next podcast. But we're going to do like a review slash why you should go to little game conventions slash whatever. But we also wrote an article about it. And I, I, I held I held back on a few stories, so I'd have something different to talk about. So there'll be some some different engagement if you listen to the podcast versus reading the article. But you should totally do both. But yes, we have an article up about ChupacabraCon. It has a bunch of links. It has a bunch of people we met. It has a bunch of pictures, one of which was taken by my five-year-old. There you go. It is one of a really rad 3D set of Robo Rally. And the reason I chose hers over mine was I was so tall. I was just looking down on it, and you couldn't see the 3D. But she's so short, she took it more at a profile. Yeah. And you picture, could. That picture really does show off the 3d version of robo rally quite nicely yes so yeah go check out the article it's the first written thing that has appeared on the site in quite a while (laughs) i think the last one was the adventures in middle earth players guide so yeah it's been a couple months for now let's go ahead and get started with our off the shelf segment and this is of course the segment where we talk about all the things that we've been doing both in board and rpg gaming as well as all the other geeky stuff that we do i know that you and i have both been reading a lot and that's been in preparation for this episode we've been reading empire of a man Imagination, Gary Gygax and the Birth of Dungeons and Dragons by an author named Michael Whitwer. Which we will be talking to later in the show. Exactly. So we're not going to go into any detail now, but we are lucky enough to have Michael on for an interview this episode. So you'll be able to uh, hear it straight from the, the writer's mouth, as it were. But in general... Because this is going to be an interview, not necessarily a review, but I will say I enjoyed the book quite thoroughly. Yes, I did too. It's really well put together. I did not realize that Gary had as interesting a life as he did, and I certainly did not realize a lot of the drama that went on behind the scenes. You know what I really liked about the book? So if you replace Jerry Maguire with a fat middle-aged gamer from the Midwest, his life kind of followed that plot line, you know, where he he was on top, and then he fell, and then he kind of got back on top and learned the real lesson. Yeah. Yeah, it's good times yeah. i don't think many people actually get to live that in real life that's that's kind of impressive and i guess it's fitting for the guy who makes dungeons and dragons that his uh his life kind of fits a story it does it is it's very fitting so stick around and we'll we'll be talking to the author later this episode you'll get all the inside scoop on the book and uh, and definitely 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 read the book oh, uh, gosh, yes. simultaneously i know there's a a trade paperback like a comic book that got released about gary's life and i for life of me i can't remember the name off the top of my head i've, I've been seeing it floating around my circles but read this book this book's actually really really good I I thoroughly enjoyed it. So there you go. So, Robert, that kind of covers our our reading corner. Uh, (laughs) Pretty much all of it. Well, actually, I've had a chance to do a little bit of reading as well. I started on the Shadow War Armageddon rulebook. Cool. And then I got also distracted because I got curious about our Blood and Plunder rulebook. So I've uh, started to read through that as well. And I just keep flip-flopping back and forth. And I also recently picked up a copy of The Handmaid's Tale. So I... uh, Oh, you've been watching something on the Hulus. No, I actually have not watched the TV show yet. The book was recommended to me by... um, Someone who was watching the show on the hulus probably and uh i I, you know i'd never read it so i decided to uh, pick up the book and read through it before i uh, got into the hulus so i'll let you know what i think i haven't quite started it yet but i'm really excited about it cool cool all right well what about video games robert what what have you been playing lately uh okay i've been playing two things i've been playing heroes of the storm because that madcap quest to get stuff for overwatch for me and my kid yeah has continued and it has concluded thank 
thank God. I know. Here's the storm's not your kind of game. Yeah, I figured out what part of my problem was. This last week actually was really fun, and I figured out why because uh, when the new quest would go live, me and my buddy we would play all the games like that night, and it was awful because you know who else was playing all those games that night? All the other people who did not give a crap about winning and just wanted to get the quest done because you did not have to win five games to get the stuff. You had to play five games. So the last two weeks running, I just had luck of the draw where I, we would have just like at least three out of the five games, just two people in there that just did not care. Yeah, they were just kind of running around. It's like, lols, I'm just going to go jungle and, and get mercenaries and stuff and not and not like play. And, and that's the problem with these these uh, crossover events like this, especially with with such distinctly different genres for people that want that stuff, you're forcing them to play a game that maybe is not necessarily interesting to them. So it's, I, I get the idea though. It's, I get the idea too, but it, it kind of fails at the end of the day because well, it's but here's the thing, here's interesting. The thing. Like I said, so the, this last time we both got busy and it was mainly cause I was playing destiny. And so we, we ended up doing it like right at the last minute on Saturday evening, actually just like two days ago. And by then everybody who needed to do the, to do the quest had done it pretty much there. People who were there were actually playing. And it was fun because even when we lost, and don't get me went, we did not win those five games. We I think we won two, but even when we lost, we were playing. Yeah, it was close. We had a lot. Uh, we had a couple, squ- and that's the thing. Like I, I, I get very competitive and very spiky, but it's really hard for me to get mad if it's super close. Yeah, you know, yeah. because it's like you know we both played really good. Like there, it was very even, and I, I hate really swingy fights because those just, it's hard not to get mad at the team or just like the dumb matchmaking because you know if someone's beating you by like a third, it's just not fun. But, you know, when it's real close and it's real back and forth the whole time and you feel really on edge the whole time, that's a good game, even if you do lose. So, yeah. And that, and that was the thing. Like, all of those games, when we lost, we lost by a hair. And when we won, well, one of them, we, we just wrecked them. But the other one, we won by a hair, too. Like, we, we way pulled it out at the last minute. It was amazing that we won. And it, it felt really good. Like, those were really good, fun games. And it was, it was fun enough that I was like... Maybe I should try playing the Heroes of the Storm again. <laughs> Maybe next week with my buddy. So we'll see. We'll, we'll see. If, we'll they see added if Diva in, in though to Heroes of the Storm, and she's fun. And I got her on my kids' account, and I did not have the resources to buy her on my main account. And I'm sad because Diva's actually rad. There you go. <laughs> I may be joining you for some Heroes of the Storm. I do enjoy that game. Yeah. Well, there you go. I'll, I'll play it with you. Uh, right. Apparently, apparently, my ELO score is real, real low, and that's why they like having <laughs> me around because it's like grouped up with me. Like we, you lower our rating quite a bit. And I'm like, oh, that's just because I'm good. I'm good at sucking. Well, moving on, uh, I've had an opportunity to play some games as well. I continue my love affair with Battlefield 1. Nothing new there. Nothing new there. Uh, I continue ba- to That be- continues to rise on the tag cloud. It's funny watching Battlefield 1 because I tag it every time we talk about it. And it just gets a little bit bigger every time when I reset the tag <laughs> cloud every time we post an episode. You know, uh, sadly, that is my favorite part of posting an episode is resetting the tag cloud. Because I, I, like, I like just like having two of them open and like comparing because I'm weird <laughs> like that. Well, I uh, continue to play through my second playthrough of Grand Theft Auto V, and I'm, I'm ah. having a blast. I've forgotten just how well written it was. I mean, that, that game is just such... Is that the one with the heists? Yes, yes. It's such a like joy it. to play through. I, it really is. The characters are just so well done, and I, it, I, I the writing is clever. The, the comedian with the, the heists and, and a monkey, I, I, I don't remember. The, 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 there's a comedian who does a whole thing about the two things that guys really want more. Oh, heists and monkeys? Heists and monkeys, yeah. I, I mean, I'm down with both of those things, so yeah. I, I, that does make perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, so I, I, I should play that game because, yeah, a good heist is fun. Uh, that's probably why you're yelling at me to, to... That's why you bought Heat. 
Because uh, no, you were I, getting in the heist. I have uh, six versions of Heat at this point. I think but every you time bought they've released it. Any time. But you were in the heist mind. No, no, no. It's a brand new release. Oh. I, I, they just released it the day that I got it. Um, I, I picked up a, the new 4K transfer of Heat, and they've gone back and digitally uh, digitally reworked all the color in the film. And I have to say, I've, I've watched about half of it now, and it, the, the movie has never looked this good. It is startling how good it looks. Still have never seen it. I'm going to sit down and force you to watch it because it is my you, favorite you don't have crime to movie. Orange me. I'll, I'll watch it. Gina and wants it to see it too. So good. Yeah, the wife it wants to see so it too. Like, yeah, just give it to me and we'll watch it over a weekend. Um, anyway, sorry, sorry, sorry. Back to Grand Theft Auto Five. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's not much there. I mean, I just I continue to play it. And I continue to love it. It's just a really well done game. Also, I recently picked up Injustice Two. Oh yeah, I was watching you play that the other day. Yes, which is really good. I mean, I really like the first Injustice game. I'm a big fan of the Mortal Kombat games, and I think that NetherRealm Studios, what they do best is to incorporate a lot of value for your money, which is something you don't always get in fighting games. Looking at you, Street Fighter. Looking at you. You get all uh, a ton of game modes. You get a ton of uh, personality and the ability, ability to personalize your heroes. They've got this really neat system where uh, if you go to a certain game mode, you get unlock boxes, which unlocks equipment for your heroes and then it becomes very rpg because you can mix and match the equipment which does have a visual change on the player Hmm. and there are god it feels like thousands of pieces of equipment in this thing and you slowly power your character up as your character levels up you you were showing me this game and and i said i'd never played injustice uno yes and and i gave it to you you forced it on me so i i played it i played it with my daughter no less which maybe was a bad move because we were kind of fooling around with it and then i'm like i'm gonna use my super on you honey and then batman promptly ran her over with the batmobile (laughs) and then she's like i want to do it to you daddy and then batman's promptly got eaten by a shark yeah yeah so she was playing aquaman yes there you go um yeah i mean the game is totally over the top but it's really accessible it's really fun uh it's easy to have a lot of fun with it even if you're not into fighting games and it looks phenomenal it looks really really good and i i started playing destiny again a little bit i'm flirting with it i, I need to get some people together to, see, to do a party yeah you see you have it on the x-bone right i do yeah I do. see I, I play with you because I, I i like doing missions in that game i don't even care if i've done them five times they're just fun yeah i need to get a i need to get a party to get back into to some of the missions well i've been playing a ton of destiny and it is it is hell it is he- okay okay so my item level, my light, as they call it, currently, I got it up to 399 today, and the cap is 400. And that slow, slow, stupid crawl to get to the cap <laughs> of 400 is the worst. Because, like, before, you could find a piece of armor or whatever, and it'd be, like, five points higher than what you have. You're like, woo, look at my thing. It went up two <laughs> points today. But, like, to, now I'm like, I, everything I have is 399 And just finding a 400 and just, like, slowly, like, I, I feel like a dude in the desert, and I'm dying of thirst, and I'm trying to crawl over this, like, line to get the water. You know, it's just like, oh, it's so hard to get to the 400! <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that's fun. I'm still having a good I've been playing PvP lately. Oh, I, I better you than me. I, I, I never really got into Destiny PvP. It, it's, it's got its issues, but it, it's got a weird charm to it. I don't know. I don't know why. I, I it frustrates me to no end. It's very swingy. I hate it because some maps, like I, I've been playing handgun lately, and some maps are really good for that. And in some maps, it's like you have a handgun, you are just going to die constantly because there's a lot of corridors that people can shoot down with guns that are far more accurate at range. 
What about gaming stuff, Robert? What what have you been able to play these last two weeks? Uh, besides playtesting, my my thing, my thing that I've been been hinting at because I, I I'm awful, I guess. Yeah, no, I I, I continue playtesting. That's pretty much all I've done. Yeah, you said you had some good revelations from these last sessions. Yeah, 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 yeah. We had some good ones. And uh, actually, a book I bought. Uh, you challenged me. I was telling you about this book I bought at the con, no less. Yeah. Called the Total Party Kill Handbook, which is, by the way, it's on Dragon RPG. Awesome. It's very awesome. Very bad name because there is very little total party killing that goes on in that yeah, handbook. It, it really doesn't fit because all it is is just a series of basically fully fleshed out side quests, right? Side ca- yeah, encounters uh, yeah. from level 1 to 20. One of them is just like, here is a room you can throw into a dungeon that has puzzles in it. Confound your players. Have fun. And then, you know, some of them are just, just it's just random stuff. You know, like one of them was there. One of them's a pretty fleshed out like keep somewhere where these weird cultists like kept a, a pet hydra down in the basement and they kept feeding it. And then the hydra's gotten really big. And so its heads are poking out in random parts of the castle that are in rooms that you have to go fight in. So there's just a random head. Yeah. And then, you know, if you cut off the head, then two more grow because it's a hydra, but you can't get at the body to kill it, you know, the way you actually have to kill a hydra. So that's kind of hard. And no less, the hydra won't attack the cultists because the cultists feed it. So it knows not to eat them unless they're being offered up as a sacrifice. Don't eat them unless two two guys are holding the other cultist shoulders, I guess. <laughs> but but yeah, no, it's a, it's a really cool book. And so, yeah, for the playtesting, I adapted a couple of the encounters out of there uh, to, to just throw up my party because it was fun that way. Yeah, I was uh, reading through that book when you brought it over, and I really liked what I saw. It was really well thought out. It really fits, uh, fits nicely. And the best part about it is, even though it's spec'd out for 5th edition, I really do think you could use the core concepts and the ideas yeah, yeah. in pretty much any system. I mean, like, just take the story and adapt the characters to whatever system you want to play through. Because I could easily see it transferring over to Star Wars. I could easily see it transferring over to, to Fantasy, to any of these other systems that we see. It's a good book. It's called The Total Party Kill Handbook. I forget the author's name. It'll be in the yeah, show notes. I think, honestly, I would call it, um, you know, a, a very inexpensive, essential piece of kit for any any GM. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I've been having this weird thought experiment lately about running a really sandboxy D&D game, and this just seemed right up my alley for it, because it's things I could just throw in, you know, that are that are cooked up perfectly, and yeah. I could just throw them in for random random seasoning on the on the adventure, or on the on the campaign. But anyway, anyway, I, I don't know. It's, it's an excellent book. I, I tried out two of the encounters with it. It's a lot of fun. Um, the encounters range from level 1 to level 20. And, oh, and this is the best part. The dude actually has a Patreon. And uh, so I think right now it's like once a month he just releases another encounter in that style. Huh. Uh, and then, you know, if he gets more money, he'll release more per month or something like that. But, yeah, yeah, it's it's cool. Like, I, I've thought about I've thought about doing it just to get like I think he's I think he's got like six or seven up right now. I want to say, well, I've had a chance to play some games as well. I have uh, recently gotten into the uh, Star Realms standalone slash expansion colony wars so it's a standalone version of star realm so you can play it alone as a deck it's a fully featured deck or if you want you can combine it with star realms and you can combine it with all of the expansions from star realms to create like a super deck builder Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and honestly the neat thing about star realms is the the more you add to it the more interesting it gets because you see more variation in the cards and since there are larger quantities of cards in there it becomes harder to kind of anticipate what's left in the deck yeah to count the cards which can which can definitely improve your competitiveness that's why i liked buying every expansion under the sun for carcassonne yes once you get used to carcassonne like you can kind of like you know count the tiles i guess now i also recently introduced a buddy of mine actually you met Colt, when we played Lords of Waterdeep together, you met my buddy Colt, mm-hmm. and he was recently introduced by me to Can't Stop. Have you ever played Can't Stop? No. It's brilliant. So you have a board, and the board has all the different number combinations that you can get out of a pair of dice. 
you toss four dice and then you look at the dice and you decide by combining two dice what numbers you can get to. So let's say you roll a one, a two, a three, and a four. You could do a combination like one and two is three. So you would have the number three. Three and four is seven. So you have the number seven. So you you move a marker on the three track and the seven track. Okay. Now, the, mar- uh, the, the board is basically an octagon. And the reason it's an octagon is because for numbers like five, six, and seven that come up with more consistency uh, because of the, the probabilities of rolling the dice, mm-hmm. you uh, have a longer track. That would be the center of the octagon. For numbers like... 2 and 12 that come up with very little frequency because they're harder to roll on a pair of dice, you only, say, have to move 3 on the track. You start rolling the dice, you look at the combinations, and as long as you have a valid number that you can make out of the dice, then you get to move uh, that particular token forward on that particular track. Okay. The first person to claim 3 columns wins. Now, you can throw the dice as much as you want. But the moment you cannot make a valid combination on the board, and mind you, this gets harder as people start to claim columns. Yeah, as columns get locked. As soon as you can't make a valid combination on the dice, you lose all your forward progress for that round. So, for example, forward. if the say the eight column was down, if I rolled four fours, I would be I'd be out because I all I can make is eight, and then eight's claimed. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Um, and you know, basically, it's a push your luck game. And you go as long as you can, and sometimes you get on a run, and you'll start to get greedy, and then you lose all that forward motion, which hurts. It hurts so bad. So yeah, can't stop. It's a fantastic game. It's a really good push-your-luck game, and it's really fun to play. Uh, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. I've also been playing Waterdeep with Colt, because we introduced it to him, and he really liked it, so we've been playing it more and more. Uh, we've been playing the digital version on our lunch break at work, and it's been really good. And um, I've also been playing the digital version of Tokaido. A lot. Yeah, you talked about that last one too. Yeah, it's um, it, it continues to be just super, super fun and easy, and, and just the digital version just makes it move that much quicker. It's uh, it's one of the rare games that I actually prefer the digital to the physical, which is kind of interesting. Weird. And that, that's about all I've done in terms of actually playing a game. But that's not to say that that's all the gaming we've uh, that I've done. Um, you and I got to sit down. We had a painting day, and we continued to work on our Blood Bowl teams, and they're getting really close to being done. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. We got to the the all important Newland oil piece of the puzzle <laughs> and, and I, was, I was getting mad because I, I i i'll admit i've been paying my orcs a little half-assed in my head i was telling myself i want to see i want to see how much the newland oil can really help and in my heart i i it was hurting me because i i was just kind of painting them half-assed but then i put the newland oil on them and and i got to reassert my my no no this was all for science i did this because i wanted to see what the newland oil can do oh my god they say that stuff is talent in a bottle they yeah, were not the joking the century they look so good i mean my guys i was starting to get frustrated because you know i'm, I'm reasonably recent to the whole painting thing and i was trying my hardest oh you were you were stressing yeah you were stressing. I, well, I was and i'm just sitting here like i'm just slapping really on paint job. it's just orcs who cares <laughs> well i was trying really hard really hard to do a good job and i was getting frustrated because i could I, I every time i looked down i could see all the errors and that's just the nature of my personality and then i throw the wash on there and it's like it erases all of the errors I, it's just amazing it's magic yeah i mean it makes me feel like anybody and if you've even had like a small inkling of desire 
to try painting, do it because the washes help you so much. And I don't know what juju the Newland oil very specifically has because I used to make my own washes out of ink. I, I I make my own washes out of ink. I make washes out of like I have airbrush paint that I use and to make washes out of that because it's kind of liquidy and whatnot. And the Newland oil is is just the best thing I've ever seen. It's weird. Like I don't know what the and it sticks too. I think I still have it on my fingernails. My kid was like, Daddy, why did you paint your nails? I'm like, no. Nah. <laughs> it's just it's just model paint. Well, I, I, I can't wait. We're getting awfully close to actually being able to play Blood Bowl, and at which point we'll finally get to do our deep dive. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah, probably probably one, maybe two more sessions of painting. We'll see. We'll see. So Well, and I actually got some painting done over the weekend. I, I had a chance to sit down and work a little bit more on my Pathfinder team. They're coming along. I'm almost to the point where I can do a wash, and, and they are just about prepared. So that will prepare us for for our hopeful deep dive into the... Uh, I have still only built one Tyranid. you got to get on that. Yeah. Well, I like modding them, and I just haven't had the time. I'm really excited about the Shadow War Armageddon rules. I think they're really kind of neat. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting that out on the table. So I've really been working hard on my little towel. And then not to confuse yourself any any further, you went down to the GW store recently and, and pre-ordered the uh, Age of Sigmar skirmish stuff, too. Yes, which we'll be talking about more in the news. But yeah, because they actually have stuff about it now. Yes, Age of Sigmar is now getting a rule set for skirmish-level battles. and um, It's like 10 bucks, right? Yeah, it's 10 bucks. It's uh, 44 pages, and honestly, I, I can't help but to, and I have not read it yet. I'm sure it's a fine rule set, and I, I fully plan on playing it, but I, I can't get that, the, the thought out of my head that Games Workshop looked at all the interest around Armageddon mm-hmm. and said, wow, this skirmish thing is really a thing. I think a lot of people are really interested in it, and so they just decided to throw one out for uh, Age of Sigmar as well. So um, I'm really looking forward to that. All right. Well, you got a couple of YouTube channels you want to do a quick shout out for, yeah? Kind of, kind of. Okay. So one thing I, I've been watching, I, I watch a lot of random YouTube stuff because for some reason it keeps the kid entertained. Anyway, I found this one and this dude needs no further advertisement because he's making like four grand a month on his Patreon. But his name's Justin Scard. He does like travel videos. Typically it's just Disney stuff, but he also does historical stuff. Like right now he's taking a road trip down Route 66 and just reporting from random and random towns and weird tourist stops along the way. Anyway, it's entertaining. And, you know, if you want to watch a guy do smash cut after smash cut, <laughs> about he showed me some of his stuff. I yeah. like I like how deep into the history he goes. Yeah, yeah. He just yeah. It's it's just it's it's a nice little video and and you know I mean it's been making me think like maybe I should go down Route sixty six. That kind of looks fun. Oh, I would love to do that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, get to have some vicarious fun through Justin Scard. Also, my buddy Todd, he's a real real good painter. You oh might, man, is he good? Yeah. So he fired up uh, a little side project called uh, Sprue Loose Minis. Uh, I will have a link in the show notes. Right now, he's just posting pictures of his uh, the models that he's painted, but he's thinking about doing reviews or tutorials. He, he's, he's a photographer, so <laughs> the pictures of his models are really nice because he has all the, the good equipment, you know, like like that weird umbrella thing. That, that's the light. <laughs> yeah. Um, because, you know, us just shining our iPhone lights like the way we do it doesn't always turn out right. Oh, or, but I bought, a, I bought a lamp. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, there you go. I, I didn't buy a lamp, but yeah, no, he actually has a lamp. He has several lamps. I've seen this whole setup. So, yeah, no, his pictures come out really good. And, you know, I mean, he takes pretty high-quality pictures of his stuff, and they're pretty large, and it still looks pretty good, even though the model's, like, blown up all out of proportion. And he, he, he paints real, real good. And so he he said he told me he's been toying with the idea of doing commissions, but he doesn't know if he I don't know. If you like what you see, just start, like, raining dollar bills down on him. 
You know, I'm sure. I'm sure money. His work really is good. I can't wait to look at his uh, tutorials. Yeah, yeah. So that, I'll have a link in the show notes of Spur Loose Miniatures. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our off the shelf segment. We're going to take a quick break to uh, hear from some of our sponsors, and when we return, we'll be hitting up all of our wisdom of crowds. Some really good games and news in the the segment this uh, this week. I'm really excited about talking so, yeah, about some of these kickstarters. It, it's weird how the news tide happens. Like it comes in one episode. I'm sure next episode it'll be out, and we'll just be like, yeah. So there's this thing. I don't know. We're getting close enough to con season now that it, it, it's time. We're going to oh, start yeah. Gen Con is lot. getting close. Yeah. Huh? Gen Con is just in August. So we're, we're, we're right now at the, the tip of the news tsunami, I think. The news tsunami. <laughs> And now a quick word from our sponsors, Geek Nation Tours, and man, do they have an amazing tour coming up. This one all about Essen, a tour through Germany. Now, of course, it's all going to culminate in a fantastic couple of days at the Essen Game Show, which, of course, is legendary in and of itself. But before then, you get almost 10 days worth of activity all throughout Germany. You get to go to Munich, and in Munich, you're going to get a chance to play Dominion and be joined by Rod. Smith from the Watch It Played YouTube channel. And mind you, the entire time you're in Munich, you're going to be enjoying Oktoberfest, which is legendary in and of itself. You're going to get to see castles that inspired games like Castles of Mad King Ludwig. You're going to get to see all the areas that inspired places like Settlers of Catan. And you're going to get an opportunity to go through many, many German cities, learning all about both the country and all the games that it inspired. And of course, it all culminates with a bunch of days at the Essen Game Show, which is the be-all, end-all of all European gaming. So, take a look at geeknationtours.com for all the information on the Essen Tour. Do you have a tabletop, board game, miniature game, or RPG that you're going to release for retail? Or do you have an upcoming tabletop Kickstarter that you're about to launch? We would love to interview you for a future episode of the Forgot My Dice podcast. Send us an email to fmdpodcast2016 at gmail.com to schedule an interview. And welcome back. Now it's time for our Wisdom of Crowds, our bi-weekly tabletop news and Kickstarter segment. And we're going to be starting off this week with a bit of news. There's lots of news, actually, around Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition, which i got to tell you I'm excited about because I've been wanting this game to come out so much. They had a big uh, convention or something in uh, Berlin, I guess. Like, World of Darkness Berlin, I think is what it was called. I have never heard of this before in my entire life. And next thing I know, there's like a hashtag on the Twitters, which is how I was getting most of my information. Basically, what got announced is my gaming guru or whatever, Ken Height, has been announced lead developer, which I think was an acceptable reason for him not to be a ChupacabraCon over the weekend because yeah, he was listed enough, as a guest. Enough. And I was like, he's not going to be there. Oh, he's, yeah, okay. Well, he's in Berlin, probably on someone else's dime, <laughs> eating, eating, eating German food. I can think of worse fates. Yeah, yeah. So I, I will accept that this time, Ken Height, but you better be here next year so I can fanboy all over your face. He got announced as a lead developer, and you will remember Ken Height as if we have not shut up enough about the Dracula dossier. I, it's been a while since I talked about it because that game kind of fell apart right around the time my twins were born. But probably one of the best gaming books I've ever read. I, I'll, I'll just go out and say it. Like I, I, I've heard a lot of people talk about how to run a sandbox game, and that book was like showed me how to do it, and it it opened my mind, man. Yeah, yeah. So Dracula dossier is is amazing, it, and, and 
And last year, it won uh, some very prestigious awards. Yeah, well, yeah, it was Annie's. Anyway, anyway, we're talking about Vampire, not not what he did last year. But that's his cred. Pedigree, man. Pedigree. Pedigree Pedigree's important. The funny part is, anytime somebody brings this up on the internet, what they always bring up is, like, he worked on the last Unicorn game, Star Trek game, back in 1990, like, five or something. It's like, dude, Home Skillet has done stuff since then. But yeah, yeah, Ken Height is a very, very talented game designer, and he's a very, very big fan of horror. GURPS Horror was a book he wrote. It's actually an excellent book of a breakdown of how to run a horror game. So yeah, it's it's cool stuff. So now you, you've got some quotes from him that you managed to pull off the internet. So I'm going to give you the topic, and you give me the quote. Okay. Lore. It's still in the world of darkness, but very much about the 21st century. Our goal is to make it dark and horrific. More on lore. Mostly timeline advancement, but everything you've ever read in Vampire the Masquerade already explicitly from an unreliable narrator. I, I think is the way to go because given most of those books are not written from like somebody telling you something's point of view, but it's probably that's probably a good way to, to think of things that happened in the in the past in the world of darkness. All right. Mechanics uh, still uses D10s, but not storyteller so far. So they are coming up with a new system. Other world of darkness games. I'm only doing vampire. Other games are by different designers. Uh, which kills me because I'm I personally am really excited about the that, werewolf. That's always how they do it, though. I mean, I know, I know, I know, but I'm 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 starved for news here. So <laughs> I'm as excited as I am about the vampire stuff. I really want the werewolf stuff too. So I'm just kind of I'm waiting. I'm excited. I, I'm curious how they're going to update Mage, if any. So and if they're going to get my boy Phil. The greatest era of Mage was under Phil. So anyway, on Pelgrane Press, I won't have a lot of time for Pelgrane work in the near future, which is sad. Yeah, that stings. Yeah, that stings. That stings. I was hoping he was the one that was going to write uh, Knights Black Agents one to one, but I guess it will not be him. All right, and finally on vampires. Uh, so I, I actually read this. This is uh, this first quote is from uh, actually from the Dracula dossier, which is from the sidebar on playing the good vampire. <laughs> If it were up to me, nobody would ever get to play the good vampire again in any medium, but it is sadly not up to me. And when somebody cut that little bit out of the PDF, I guess, and like tw- I actually saw this tweet because uh, someone tweeted it to him and said, what do you think of that height? You know, you said no more good vampires. Now you're writing Vampire the Masquerade. And I already thought of this response. We were on the same wavelength. Vampires are monsters, but in Vampire the Ma- Masquerade, the possibility of moral redemption is not entirely remote. Yeah, that would be my response. I would not necessarily call any vampire character in Vampire the Masquerade a quote-unquote good guy. Not 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 like Angel or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah. And I'm glad, I'm glad he's making them monsters because especially in the 90s in the wake of Vampire the Masquerade, like, I, I got the sense that a lot of people really thought that becoming a vampire was like just getting superpowers. It was like your origin story. It's like, no, it's a curse. It should be a curse. It's not something cool that happens to you. It is torment. So I'm happy. All right, so that's an update for you on Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition. I, I'm definitely excited about it. Now, let's any, go- any word? Have you seen anything about them bringing it over? Because I, I saw them not, not being noncommittal. Thing. Very noncommittal. The last thing I read was, was hey, it's coming out in Europe, and, and it's coming out in Europe. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> now, moving on, it is the beginning of con season, which, of course, means that we're also in awards season. <laughs> And we're going to start out with the Origins Awards. These are the awards given out during the Origins Game Convention. So so for those of you that need a little subtext, the Origins Award are the Industry Awards. So you think yes. of them like the Academy Awards. People who are in the industry vote on these things. And then the other big awards, which we just talked about with Ken Hyatt, are the Ennies. The Ennies are the better award because they are the people's 
Choice Award. So looking at the Origin Awards, a lot of good stuff here. It's broken down into seven core categories, family games, of which I recognize none of them. I've not played a single one of them. Role-playing games, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. Traditional card games, game accessories, board games, collectible games, and finally, miniatures. So, starting out with the family games, uh, again, I don't see anything here that is calling out to me that or that I've ever tried, but I do see stuff here from Cryptozoic, from Haba, and from Arcane Wonders, so definitely some larger publishers being represented there. Yeah, the only one I recognize is the Cartoon Network crossover crisis game, and I just remember that because it was coming out, and it was a yeah. thing I was aware of. Now, moving on to role-playing games, uh, I, I see an easy win here. So we got 7th C. Yeah. Which, der. Wizards, Wizards gets... Wizards gets, got a lot of love on this yeah, list. Yeah, they, they got three chances at bat, which which is probably bad for them, because it'll probably split their vote. But they got Curse of Strahd, yep. Storm King's Thunder, and, and the Volo's Guide to Monsters, yeah. which, which I've been reading that... That's actually a very good book. And, and Curse of Strahd is pretty universally regarded as one of the best modules to come out. Storm King's a lot of... It fit. seems like not as many people played Storm King, but everybody who played it said it was really good, too. So Anyway, uh, No Thank You Evil from Monty Cook Games, which is the, the your kid's first role-playing game. I have that. It's still waiting in a box for my kid to learn how to read. Can't wait. Yeah, and as much as I love Monty Cook, I, I don't know that that's the one that's going to win an award. Fair enough. Star Wars The Force Awakens. So this was their box set. Like, you know how they have the Learn to yep. Play box set? This, they made one for The Force Awakens. Which, which, by the way, let me tell you, for the Star Wars games, if you're at all interested, those box sets are an amazing value. To follow that up, we got Shadowrun, Seattle Sprawl. I don't even know how to tackle that next word. <laughs> Simbarum. Simbarum? Okay. Simbarum. Okay. Uh, by and he's from Modiphius, so that's, they're publishers of Tales from the Loop. Last but not least, the One Ring RPG, Horse, Horse Lords, Lords of, of Rohan, Rohan, which I, I've heard nothing but praise for the entire line of the One Ring's products. Like, uh, Riven, the random book of Rivendell won one of these awards one year. So, I mean, they're they're all really well-researched. And I've, I've read a couple of them. They're actually really good. Well, so nice. i got to say, this, this, this list has a lot of good stuff on it, without a doubt. And, I mean, it, it to even be placed on this list is uh, really high praise. That being said... I got to tell you, 7C really just sticks out here for me. It really, really does. John Wick just posted a picture, a tweet today, a picture of him holding a Golden Geek Award, and he said, awards are stupid until you win one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, going down the rest of the list here, um, under traditional card game, I do see a couple names that popped out. Most importantly, Mystic Veil by AEG and The Big Book of Madness by Yellow, which I played and, and enjoyed thoroughly. Under gaming accessories, I see a lot of stuff here, um, including an insert from the Broken Token. And those of you who have been listening to the show for a while know I'm kind of obsessed with the concept of good inserts for boxes. And, and it's for your favorite game ever. And it's Well, I don't know about ever, but it's for one of my favorite games, Blood Rage. And speaking of Blood Rage, Blood Rage makes it onto the board game list. A list of 10 nominees, and I'll tell you what, as much as I saw a clear standout in the RPG list... This list of board games is amazing. I It's hard to realize that all this stuff came out within a single year. It's shocking, actually. Yeah, it was a good year for board games. Yeah, no kidding. World's Fair 1893, Terraforming Mars, Star Wars Rebellion, Scythe, Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition, Islebound, Feast for Odin, Cry Havoc, Clank, and Blood Rage. I've played the vast majority of the list, and i got to tell you, between Blood Rage, Cry Havoc, Islebound, Mansions of Madness... Scythe, Star Wars Rebellion, and Terraforming Mars, it's hard to pick out a winner. That is a strong list. I've only played Mansions of Madness and Scythe. Between the two, I think Scythe should win. That game was sublime. 
Next up is collectible games. Um, you got your Yu-Gi-Ohs, you got yeah. your Pokemon, you got Kaladesh from Magic, you know. Well, HeroClix. I'd give my my vote there to Kaladesh just because it was the first Magic the Gathering set to actually get me to get sucked in and build, build a deck, and that says something. And then rounding that out, we got miniatures. And these appear to be miniatures releases, not necessarily like actual physical models. Yeah. Um, but we got Warhammer 40k Kill Team, Conflict 47, Dragon Rampant, Tanks, which is a great name. And uh, Drop Fleet Commander by uh, Hawk War Games. Now let's go ahead and move over to our other awards, the Spiel de Yar nominees for 2017. <laughs> Thank you for saying that one out loud. I wasn't even going to try. Oh, don't even get me started on the Kinder Spiel de Yar. <laughs> There's three core awards that you can win uh, with the Spiel de Yar. You've got the Spiel de Yar, which is kind of a basic gaming... Whoa, whoa, back, back up, back up. So this is the Big Board Gaming Awards, right? Yes. Is this the People's Choice, or is this the Academy? This, or is this the Golden Globes? This is the European Academy. So I guess that would be like the, the BAFTA. Gold, the, no, the Golden Globes is the uh, Associ- Association of Foreign Press, right? I have no idea. I, uh, I, this metaphor is probably too complicated for me. You, you done jumped the shark. I'll go with the BAFTAs. That's the British one, right? All right, sounds good. This is the <laughs> BAFTAs. They, they, they do come out of Germany, which is, of course, a renowned country for their love of board games. Germans love their Hasselhoff, and they love their board games. Yes, they do. So the Spiel de Jahr is a general award given to a game. You'll see stuff like Eldorado from Rath, Rathsberger, who've been publishing games forever. King Domino from Blue Orange, who, of course, you might know Blue Orange from Vikings on Board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I recognize it. Yeah. The Kinderspiel de Jahr is a award given to a game aimed primarily at children. You've got Captain Silver, Ice Cool, and the Mysterious Forest this year. And then finally, the big daddy of all the awards, the Kennerspiel de Jahr, which is for the modern hobby gamer. And I got to tell you, there's, there's, I've played two of the three games. The three games are Exit the Game. Raiders of the North Sea and Terraforming Mars. And between Terraforming Mars and Raiders of the North Sea, that's a tough pick. Those are both really, really good games. I would say Terraforming Mars just because it is the most original of the bunch. Raiders of the North Sea is actually the third in a series of games. So they've had some time to build from the previous titles. But Terraforming Mars is just fantastic. So I'll be very curious to see who wins. Wow, this is high level. Yeah. You're, you're like really putting thought into this. I can't wait for the any nominations because we've agreed to do a deep dive on that. Yes, we yeah. have. All right. So that is the beginnings of award season. We'll follow up and let you know who wins these as uh, they start to get published. So yeah, now some news from Games Workshop who've been in the news a lot lately and uh, for a lot of really good stuff. Yeah, yeah. So they're making a skirmish variant of the Age of Sigmar, which... Seems to be quite in line with uh, Shadow War Armageddon, just kind of a, basically a riff on that. What kind of perked my eye is that Age of Sigmar's rule set, uh, Shadow War Armageddon is based off of, like 2nd, 3rd edition Warhammer, which was a kind of a complicated rule set. This one is based off of Age of Sigmar, which is far less so, so that caught my eye for just ease of play. We heard about this last time, but we, we actually got some solid stuff. So they're, gonna, they're saying it's a simple modification for the core rules to introduce skirmish battles. Details of battling and skirmish formation as models fight as individuals rather than groups. There's going to be a general, which is like, you know, your leader model, like in Shadow War Armageddon. Yep. Battleshock, which is, you know, basically command rules, which is, again, is in Shadow War Armageddon, too. If, if you, someone whoops on you hard, you can get scared and run. 
all new command abilities, artifacts of power, mysterious terrain rules, and clarification regarding summoning and the generation of extra attacks and hit rolls in skirmish games. Well, we will be able to talk in a lot more detail about these rules next episode because I have pre-ordered them and they are coming out this coming weekend. Okay, so by the time you've heard this, they're already out, so go get them. Yes. And, and we'll it, we'll mention it next time. Ten bucks. Ten bucks. A little over 40 pages. For anybody who's playing Age of Sigmar, it just seems like a no-brainer. So, moving right along, let's talk about Kickstarters now. A lot of good Kickstarter information, and we're going to start off with something that you found, Robert, and that is Kaladar Dreams of the Air. Yeah, we're not going to talk about this one too much, because the Kickstarter doesn't launch until June 14th. I just wanted to bring it up as something, A, we are going to cover, and B, uh, it's by Bruce Hurd, and it's for the Kaladar setting, so if you like old school, like old D&D and, and Rule Cyclopedia and Mystera, just put that on your calendar June 14th. Kaladar Dreams of the Area. It looks cool. It's going to be a big adventure. Next up, sir, is something you found. Ravage. Dungeons of the Plunder. Yeah, this is a cool looking game. So it's a co-op, a solo, or a one to five player, what they call treachery game. In it, you play no heroes. You only play as bad guys. And these are Blackroot Orcs. And they are going into a dungeon for loot and for glory. It's kind of cool. You have a deck of cards, and this deck of cards is randomized, and you build the dungeon using these cards. You have markers for your players. There's uh, custom dice to uh, let you resolve combat and whatnot. And um, the cool thing is that there's actually four different classes for the orcs. You've got berserkers, cultists, headhunters, and shaman. There's some... uh, Really interesting mechanics in terms of how you resolve combat. It's uh, a little bit tactical, and the best part about it is just all the randomization. It just it's going to feel fresh every time you play. And while there are some um, downsides to getting killed in the game, you are not eliminated from the game. The game comes with respawns. If you die, whatever killed you, whether it be a monster or a trap, basically gets your loot. And so if it's a monster, you have to chase it down and kill it to get your loot back. And if it's a trap, you have to go disarm the trap and get your loot. So that is Ravage Dungeons of Plunder. All right. Well, moving right along is another title that you saw, Robert. That's Monarchies of Mao. Tell us what we need to know. It's more like Meow. (laughs) Yes. Good point. Monarchies of Meow. Meow. Meow, then. Tell me all about it. So Pugmire was came out a, a year ago. Uh, the PDF is just kind of hitting the streets, and I'm starting to hear some good buzz about it, which is like making me go like, I should have backed that game like I thought I should. Oh, yeah. I've already said that to myself several times. It's a world of fantasy adventure in the ancient future. So, yes, it's our Earth. There was some sort of apocalypse. Humans are gone. And in Pugmire, you are in a kingdom of doggies that have, you know, walk upright and talk and do all the things that, you know, good Planet of the Apes style dogs should do. And this is the follow-up game to that. So this is the cats and the the cat kingdom, the monarchies. And so think of it kind of like, it kind of gave me the vibe of like City States Venice, you know? So there's, you know, dudes that are fencing and kind of swashbuckling has, has a different sort of vibe attached to it. But yeah, you're an adventure. It's based off of fifth edition rules, but tightened up, I guess. I'm not sure what the difference is. And what's nice about it is if you if you did get into, into Pugmire like we did, they have several backing levels where you can either get print copies of Monarchies and Pugmire or both of them in PDF, which is super sweet. Yeah, and they're reasonably inexpensive as well. You can get a PDF copy for 20 bucks. If you missed out on Pugmire, you can spend 35 and get PDFs of both. It's 60 bucks for a... F- copy of the physical book and the pdf 70 bucks for the ability to not only get the physical and pdfs of the of the book but also your cat's name will be listed in the credits and then finally if you want to get print copies of both 
you can spend $85 at the Cats and Dogs Living Together pledge level. Oh my god, Mass Hysteria. It looks like a fun game, and I've heard nothing but good stuff about Pugmire. So basically, this is like, are you a cat person in like D&D, the role-playing game? If that fits your two things, which, given how big cats are on the internet, I'm not shocked. Uh, at this point, it looks like it's doing about as well as Pugmire did. I, I would expect them to do about the same. Yeah, uh, which is about it, twenty large or t- completely funded at this point. Yeah, yeah, and they uh, Pugmire made just shy of, of uh, two hundred thousand. So eleven hundred backers. They're at about seventy three grand, and there's twenty three days left to go. So there's going to be a lot of growth here. That is the Monarchies of Mao by uh, the Onyx Path. All right. Well, moving on, uh, I'm going to tell you a little about an interesting deck builder I found. It's called Village of Legends. And it is completely funded, got 26 days to go, and it's already at just shy of $8,000. And it's got some interesting mechanics. Now, it is a deck builder. So you've got cards that represent attack and cards that represent coin. And you use that, of course, to buy new cards. Now, those cards can be weapons. Those cards can be defensive. Any number of different things. Now, the interesting thing is they're, they're borrowing some RPG mechanics in the game. And anytime you can take a piece of equipment and sell it back at half cost. It's kind of interesting because that gives you the ability to thin your deck, which for a deck builder is very important. And it gives you the ability to basically generate resources from unwanted equipment, which is kind of unique. I don't think I've ever seen a gameplay mechanic like that in a deck builder. When you kill a monster, you gain the amount of XP that's equal to the cost of that monster's buying price. So it's kind of interesting because you will have a leveling mechanic in it as well. There's a lot of really genuinely interesting mechanics at work here. This is really kind of caught my attention in a big way. Backing levels are all based on pounds. Uh, that being said, you can get the base game for two to four players for 22 bucks. That's pretty good. That's an awesome, awesome deal. Um, you can also get the Ancient Guild expansion and the base game for 33 That lets you actually go up to six players. And then they've got a couple other expansions available. And if you want to get everything, the full experience with all the expansions, it's 39 bucks. That's a really, really good deal. <laughs> so that is Village of Legends, a fantasy deck building game. All right. Well, next up, you have brought uh, to our attention Endless Dungeon. Okay. So I was getting ready to actually come over here and record this podcast. And this popped up when I'm like, I will check Kickstarter one last time. I cheat, as I mentioned before, and I follow a bunch of people on Kickstarter to see what they're backing. Because if, you know, industry people are backing something, there's probably something there. And what I saw was uh, somebody somebody backed this. Uh, actually, it was Necromancer Games backed this. They're not asking for much. I think they just want 300 bucks. I don't even know what that, that's for. Um, the basic buy-in is $10 to get in on this app. And what it does is it's going to use 5th edition or Pathfinder, so just SRD games in general. And you can have it basically build you a dungeon from A to Z. And it'll say, you know, there's this in this room. You know, it'll, it'll lay it all out for you. And it kind of reminded me of, like, the app for Mansions of Madness or, you know, Descent or whatever. You know, but use it for your D&D game. And so all of the monsters and all the rolling is still up to you, but it'll generate a dungeon for you just kind of on the fly. And if they get one of their stretch goals in, they'll also add in themes. So like instead of it being like, I want to make a fifth level dungeon, you can make I want to make a fifth level necromancer's lair. It's based off of something he wrote for like fourth edition or some app game he did. He, he's got a, a Facebook page, which I, I didn't have time to go through because I literally just saw this on my way out the door. That's uh, that's the endless dungeon. Now on Kickstarter, uh, it's got a, it's got an absurdly long one too. I think it was at forty one days left as of yeah. right now. So, yeah, and and you said it's already funded. So there you go. He got his three hundred. He got his three hundred clams. He's gonna push this through. Last up is your game. Tell us about the hands of fate. 
This is a game that came out on the Xbox Live Marketplace and I believe on the PlayStation Marketplace as well. Hmm. It was a deck builder mixed with a adventure game with a lot of dialogue. It was actually a lot of fun to play. And this is actually a board game version of it, which I find interesting because it was a video game that borrowed heavily from board game mechanics and is now being made into a board game. That's so backwards. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of like <laughs> taking the opposite path. So this is Hand of Fate Ordeals. In it, it's basically a deck building game with some adventure elements. And you are uh, roaming around and basically trying to vanquish, well, in the, in the video game, you're trying to vanquish essentially death. There's lots of encounters that you can get into. There's a lot of deck building elements, which are kind of standardized. And I'm curious, I have not had a chance to read through the rule book yet, but the uh, I'm curious to see how it borrows ideas and rules from the video game and incorporates them into a more physical setting. Because one of the things that it had in the video game was, depending on where you went, there would be a different deck of enemy cards, which would have different loot mixed into them, which you could buy in for your for your deck, building up your deck. Hmm. So you'd be very curious to see how they handle that. And the package looks beautiful. You get a really nice six-panel game board. You get a bunch of plastic miniatures. You get a bunch of player boards. The player boards are where you actually can kind of construct out your character and put down the equipment that you have. Lots of different tokens and whatnot. And finally, of course, lots and lots of cards that have a really kind of classic tarot look to them in terms of art and layout, which is really kind of neat looking. Then you get your encounter cards, which is where you get the adventure element of it. Now, they've already started to unlock stretch goals. They're well on their way to unlocking the next two that they've already outlined. The game has made 45000 It's the first day. There's 29 days left to go. And I'm particularly fascinated by this one because the folks putting it out have put together some really excellent games in the past. Uh, if you're familiar with the company Rule & Make... I do have a rule and make game called Burger Up, and I've got another one coming via Kickstarter soon. Uh, and I'm just, I'm really enamored with their rules. They're very clever games, and they're a lot of fun to play. That is The Hand of Fate. It is an adventure deck building game of life and death. It's set in the Hand of Fate universe, which of course comes from the video games. It is funded and looking pretty good. This brings us to the end of our Wisdom of Crowd segment. As always, if you have any projects that you want us to take a look at, hit us up at any of our digital outlets. We will be back with a very exciting interview with author Michael Whitwer after a short break, and that will be our deep dive for the episode all about his book, Empire of Imagination. Captain, come in. It's a war zone out here. The trolls are about to overrun our position. There's casualties everywhere. No one can have a decent conversation without exploding into flame wars. I understand, sir. The other Mont and I are trying to hold them back, but no matter how many we ban, they just keep coming back in greater numbers. Captain, tell my wife. I... Freebooters Forums. A great place to chat with no trolls and no BS. All gaming, all the time. www.freebooters.com We love getting feedback, so please let us know how we're doing by doing one of the following. You can email us at fmdpodcast2016 at gmail.com You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash forgotmydice. We post all our articles there, so feel free to comment. Or you can message us directly via the Facebook Messenger. We also have Facebook comments enabled for all our posts at ForgotMyDice.com. 
You can also message us or tweet us on the Twitter. Find us at Forgot My Dice. You can join us on the Freebooter Network message boards. Find your way there by going to freebootersnetwork.com and click on the Freebooters forum. If you like the show, the best way for more people to find out about us is to give the Freebooters Network a review on iTunes. Lastly, for those of you listening from the depths of interstellar space, make sure you turn your controls 18 degrees to the left and flip the intensifier disc on and off again. Interstellar space? Yeah, they listen to podcasts on interocitors. Ah. Well, we are very lucky to have a special guest on today's show. We've got Michael Whitwer, author of the book Empire of Imagination, Gary Gygax, and the Birth of Dungeons and Dragons with us. He's got a a host of experience in regards to both the book and being a gamer, and we'll let him talk about that in a little moment. So welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you very much. I'm thrilled to be here, gentlemen. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and get started with, with something we like to establish with all of our guests, and that's your geek street cred. Tell us a little bit about your gaming history and you know, kind of the geeky stuff you're into. So I've been playing Dungeons & Dragons since I was, I don't know, it was five or six years old, for sure. I mean, it was definitely in that era. And I remember very vividly my older brother, who's three years older than I am, going over to this neighborhood kid's house who was selling his books. And we went over there, and my dad went with us, because we were, of course, just little kids, really, and, and haggling with this guy and buying this, this two-foot high stack of, of late 70s, early 80s AD&D books. And it was a very good <laughs> memory, and I remember the cost was $80. It was for my brother's birthday, I think, or Christmas or something. It did, I don't feel like it was Christmas time, though, to my recollection. And that's $80 so, you know, in, uh, what, 80s money or 90s money? 80s money. We're talking about, we're talking about like 85, 86. That, that's no small chunk of change. Yeah, yeah. Not, not at all. Not at all. I mean, you could buy a new Unearthed Arcana in 1985 for $10. So that was one of the books, incidentally. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we uh, we took this thing home. And again, it was, it was all my brother's idea, my brother Sam. You know, we were just guinea pigs. He had been playing the game with this, actually, this same neighborhood boy. And he was really interested in it. And uh, we were just little kids, so, you know, my best friend and I, we just had no concept of what we were getting into, and nor could we really understand the mechanics of a game this comp- complicated, especially the um, the original AD&D rule set. But we uh, we got into it, and my brother would just kind of lead us through these, these these wild adventures, and of course, as little kids, you know, you're totally reckless, right? You're not... You're not ready to play a sophisticated role-playing game in any in any rational sense. You, you pretty much are kind of bloodthirsty and you're reckless. And, you know, we usually got punished for that. I remember vividly trying to step on some villager kid or something or other. The kid turned into a demon because my brother had had it with us. <laughs> <laughs> Just dispatched us immediately. Oh, that um, sounds like AD&D. Oh, man. Absolutely right. <laughs> absolutely right. Uh, so, no, so we play this. I play this game about as early as I can remember. And then um, we got into a, a very, very long-term campaign of Star Wars, the role-playing game, after that. Now, which um, version? Because Star Wars has gone through quite a few iterations. That time period, I'm going to guess the D6 one? You got it. West End Games, D6. And that was, I mean, that took over our lives for the next 10 years. I mean, I'm not kidding. Um, <laughs> Be- being so a Star Wars kid myself, out. I totally understand. <laughs> exactly. That came out in, what, 86 or 87, and we got it as soon as it came out. I remember that. And we played it for years and years and years, just a long-term epic campaign. And then intermittently, we would play games. Uh, obviously, we continue to play D&D 2nd Edition. We ended up playing Palladium, which was a, not a particularly well-known uh, fantasy role-playing game. That was kind of a rip-off of D&D. 
We played Amber, the diceless role-playing game, which was very peculiar. And so we went through, we played Conan, the TSR uh, Conan role-playing game, which had a really strange hit chart. I mean, nice. so we, we covered a lot of ground. I remember playing Star Trek, the FASA role-playing game. Um, nice. Uh, so suffice it to say, we played a lot of role-playing games, watched a lot of sci-fi, a lot of fantasy. So this was kind of my makeup. This was really kind of where I came from. And to this day, it's just all of these things are very second nature, very ingrained in me. So the idea of kind of writing a book about someone in the role-playing game space, uh, while it was unusual for me, it wasn't, it was certainly not a huge departure. I mean, it, I was I was very much raised on this stuff. Let's kind of transition into the book. This all started as a master's thesis, right? That's exactly right. You know, I, I always describe it as a book I didn't mean to write. You know, you don't, you don't like walk down the street and stumble and just, oh, I wrote a book, an accident. It's the, it's the truth here. What happened was I was in a, a master's program at the University of Chicago at the time, I actually, to this day, I'm a marketing professional is what I do. I, I write proposals for a living. So like responding to requests for proposals, business proposals and grants, things like that. I was in this master's program trying to get some professional development, for lack of a better term. It's, it was a master's of liberal arts program. At the end of this program, they, uh, they have this really kind of loose requirement about writing either a master's thesis or a special project. They give you a lot of, of leeway about what you can actually you know, uh, develop and write into. And uh, I had been working on something for a while, and it wasn't really going anywhere. And somehow or another, and I really don't exactly remember exactly how it happened other than the fact that I had read some articles about uh, Gary Gygax at that period. This is um, 2012 at this point. So these were articles that I had written, most of which had been written shortly after he died. One of them was actually the David Kushner article that he, of course, just wrote a graphic novel based on this original article and this research that he did. Mm-hmm. That new uh, graphic novel, uh, Rise of the Dungeon Master. Thank you. So, so I, I brought that up earlier. <laughs> I, I couldn't remember the name of it. It was driving me nuts. That's it, Rise of the Dungeon Master. Rise and I, and I'm going to tell you, I, I have not read it yet, but it is very, it's high on my list, next thing on my list. I had read an article about Gary Gygax. You know, I never really thought a lot about this, this guy. Um, I grew up during this era. You know, I, I remember a lot of the, what people usually call the satanic panic, or this very controversial era of D&D history where everyone was worried about the game, including my own, my own mother. You know, to me, Gary was this this guy that lived, you know, 70 miles up the road. I'm from Chicago. This all this stuff happened in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, which is just about 70 miles away. And, you know, I never you know, he had created this game and and that was kind of all there was to. I never thought about the man behind the game, per se. He was just a name on the front of our books. Mm -hmm. But I read some articles and I was just really intrigued about the life this guy had led. led. I had I had never really thought about what was going on behind the scenes at TSR, what his childhood was like, all this stuff. This stuff had never really occurred to me until I started seeing some of these articles. It was at this time I actually looked for a biography about Gary and I couldn't find one because there hadn't been one written. And, and that's where there was, I had a real aha moment that I do remember this concept that, that in my mind, how could somebody as important as Gary Gygax, the guy that co-created Dungeons and Dragons, you know, the most important game in the world, if you ask me, how does this guy not have a biography? You know, this guy laid the, you know, the foundations of the information age in, in a lot of ways. Anyway, that's maybe overstating, but he certainly provided a bunch of fundamental concepts that became extremely prolific in today's um, you know, increasingly complex information age, and, and largely because a lot of people that are kind of the masters of this era grew up playing the game. I, I kind of came to this conclusion by, by the transitive property. 
if Gary created this game and this game became foundational to so many huge pop culture phenomena like like massively multiplayer online role-playing games like World of Warcraft or computer role-playing games like Final Fantasy or Elder Scrolls, if, if he did that, then by the transitive property, he's really important. So that's that's how I kind of landed on this idea, and that's when I jumped into it as a master special topic. And that's when I started doing the research and doing all the outreach interviews, and um, by the time it was done... It was it was actually kind of approaching book length. After I completed the program and submitted this piece, I was like, well, gosh, I, I could probably adapt this into something that was that's commercially viable. So that's that's kind of how it went. The research is particularly key here because I uh, you, you have an appendix in the book that basically goes through piece by piece on the book and, and shows all the different pieces of research that you had for each particular, for lack of a better term, vignette, which is the kind of the way the book is structured, which I'd like to talk mm-hmm. about in a moment. So tell us about that research, because um, my understanding is based on your notes here that you actually had a lot of input from the Gygax family. That's exactly right. I mean, they were they were so generous with information and, and just, just wonderful people to work with, I mean, throughout. I worked very closely with, um, well, with Ernie and Elise and Mary and Luke. I mean... I, they were really, really excited about helping. I mean, I, as simple as that. I mean, just about everyone I talked to was really excited about telling their their stories of Gary and, and kind of sharing these memories. So yeah, I did. I, I worked very closely with many of the many, many members of the Gygax family, uh, among others, and uh, that was extremely important because, as you suggested, the way I end up telling the story is kind of via vignettes, and so there is an oral history element to this, right? You're kind of recreating these events that happen, and sometimes you're recreating them based on the stories you've heard. And then you try to corroborate that with written accounts or a number of other different things to try to recreate this history, sometimes photographic evidence, right? So the, the research was was extremely important, right? I mean, it, it, it really put a lot of onus on me to make sure that I could, I could always be at least accurate within the spirit of the event or how it happened. And that was really important. So, you know, the project started as a very traditional, you might say, nonfiction approach. You know, I wasn't trying to write a, a dramatized biography or anything like that. It was supposed to be kind of laying out the facts exactly as they happened, you know, in traditional, you might say, nonfiction form. But as I got deeper and deeper into the project, I realized that really the most appropriate way to tell the story of a storyteller like Gary was in this kind of dramatized approach. And so that required kind of even a higher level, you might say, of research, because then you start making some suppositions, you start doing some extrapolation. And you know that, of course, you know, when you take those artistic liberties, you have to be very careful. So, you know, you have to really make sure that you're as tight as you are, as you simply can be uh, on your research front. Now, the vignette was an interesting choice because, and Robert, you can speak to this from your perspective too, but for, for me, it made everything much more intimate. And Oh, shut up and get out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say that. Yeah, it, jerk. It, it, it gives a certain intimacy to, to your exploration of Gary's life. And I, I mean, I was just wondering, once the family had had a, an opportunity to, to read your final manuscript, I mean, what kind of feedback did they give you based on, on that decision to go with these vignettes? You know, that's an awesome question because I had no idea how anyone was going to react to this. I knew I was doing something different. I knew I'd put a lot of thought and time and care into into trying to get it right. At the end of the day, I had really thought a lot about the biographical form. That is to say, I I had thought about this idea that if a biography is by nature, a, you know, a book about somebody, well, is the intention of the biography to just to give you a lot of facts and figures about the person? So you so that somebody that read it might say, I know a lot about this person. 
Or is it meant to give you a sense of the person, the idea that you almost know them or that you can sense what they're going through, you can feel with them? And I thought to myself, well, that's kind of every bit as valuable in a weird sort of way. You know, if you want to really get to know someone, isn't it kind of better to kind of understand their aura a little bit versus just know a lot of facts and figures? So I tried to to cover both, of course. But that is a, a big thing that drove the style, right? This th- These vignettes that you talk about, this this kind of, you know, living in the moment approach about how I wrote the book. And so I had no idea how the Gygax family was going to react to this. And my biggest question, I remember when I, I submit an early copy to Ernie, uh, I remember being terrified, first of all. And I also remember wondering whether I got him right, whether I got Gary right. And I remember having tears in my eyes when I heard back from not only Ernie, but Mary and Luke, who all told me that I had just nailed him, that I'd got it exactly right. I mean, Ernie, I remember, I'll never forget the email. He said that um, he broke down and he was a combination of, of tears and laughter throughout and that he had to stop at several moments because he was so overwhelmed because I had captured his father so so closely. That was the most important Maybe the most important email I've ever gotten. I'll never forget it. Um, I remember having a conversation with him right after that. That was the first time I knew that I was on to, I was, I was getting close. Let me put it that way. Well, it works. Uh, I, t- I tend to read on the elliptical when I'm working out. And so I, I was just sitting there and I was not expecting this book to just give me a swift kick in the feels for that last 40 <laughs> pages. It was rough. Mind you, working out and, and like, and like getting, getting a little teary eyed is not a good combination. Cause that just leads to stinging tears in your eyes. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah. It interrupted my workout a couple times. I don't know who said it, but I remember I heard somewhere that a good Elvis impersonator is not about getting it right. It's about channeling his mojo. And, and mm-hmm. that's, that's really what came through in this book. Like you really, yeah, you know, it's like what they said, you got, you got a sense of the guy. And so, you know, near the end of his life and, and, you know, near the back half of the book, it, it, you really start feeling for the guy and, and experiencing, you know, his life. It's really weird. It, it, it was just really, it, I was not expecting that. Just, I, I was like, I'll just finish this book up today. Cause we got to do this interview tomorrow. <laughs> and I, I was just working on the elliptical and all of a sudden it was, it was just rough. It was like that beginning of up. <laughs> Oh my gosh! What a great that's a, that's an excellent excellent comparison. If I'm even close to that, I'll take it, man. That's, uh, no, absolutely. That that, that's, a, that's a fair comparison because the the entire- I, I guess we're spoiling it right now. Spoiler alert! But yeah, <laughs> I, I just didn't see it coming when it happened. I was like, oh. Yeah. No, you know, it's it's kind of interesting, and Michael, I'd love to get your take on this. I see a lot of parallels here with a lot of visionary people. It, it seems that. They have their ups and their downs, but they always manage to rebound at the end. And, and you know, I, I look at somebody like Steve Jobs, and I, I see a lot of parallels there. You know, that rise from nothing, and then he encountered a humongous setback, but then by the end, he's highly revered again. And I, I was just wondering, do, do you think that's a, a common trait for these kind of visionary people that redefine what we know for, say, a genre or for for a technology, etc.? Or or do you think that that's just you know blind luck that they happen to kind of share a, a basic path? No, that's a great question. I mean, I, I, I'll say this. Uh, the, I don't see much blind luck in it. I mean, you know, there, there are some clear character traits that seem to drive people like this. And I wish I could say I was more studied on some of the other great visionaries out there. But what I can tell you about Gary with, with certainty is that there was no luck in it whatsoever. If anything, the man had no luck. Um, <laughs> and yet uh, the, the guy just, the amount of energy he had around community building Gaming, variance, design. I don't even understand 
what uh, where this energy must have come from i mean but but not only did he have it but he willed the game into existence that's how i like to talk about it is that there's there there was no luck in it nothing came easy for him nothing fell into his lap it was almost like tragedy after tragedy but it was those sleepless nights every night grinding well you know again by the time dnd comes out right he's he's got five kids he's basically unemployed he's got nothing really going for him and yet he's just willing this thing into existence because he knows it's the right game because he's so obsessed with this this concept and this idea. So in Gary's case, it, it was the you know, it was the classic on some level bootstraps, but really just grinding his way to victory. And it was really fueled by an incredible creativity. When I think about the stuff this guy could do, not only the volume of material, but the kinds of things he was thinking about. I mean, he did really kind of redefine gaming as we know it, of course, in collaboration with Dave Arneson, who really laid the foundation with so many of these important concepts. I mean, while these two didn't necessarily get along, especially in the long run, they were the right combination of people at the right time to make this thing happen. Also, I really like that about the book because I had heard that for years, you know, it's like Gary and Dave made this game. And I never really got what their division of labor was because I've, I've read a few things myself and no one really ever explained it. And that's what I, I, I really liked about this book. Like you, you really got you really nailed and made it very clear what Dave brought to the party, and what Gary brought to the party. Well, I, I appreciate that. You know, and again, I, I tried to get that as right as I possibly could. And, you know, be, be mindful that the book is because it's a biography about Gary. It kind of follows Gary like a like a little angel on Gary's shoulder. Right. You could kind of suggest that that it's probably it's it's more Gary focused in terms of what Gary was doing versus what what Dave Arnold is doing at the time, and I will tell you right now that that there's not complete agreement about who exactly did what. I feel very good about about who did what when it came to actually writing that manuscript of D and D. I feel pretty solid on on kind of what was happening there. But you know, Dave brought an unbelievable amount to the table. I mean, when it came, when it came to the actual some of these a lot of these fundamental concepts and how it was actually gamified. You know, a lot of that credit is due to Dave Arneson. You know, he he was definitely a visionary, but a very different type, too. You know, a lot of people have kind of defined Gary as the Steve Jobs and Dave Arneson as, as the Steve Wozniak. That's not quite fair for a number of reasons. That's not quite right, I guess you could say, for a number of reasons. But but there is some truth in it that, that you know, Gary was the uh, not only the, a game design visionary, but a marketing visionary in this respect. You know, one thing Gary understood about what the original D&D needed to be was something that could be understood by war gamers across the country. Yeah. Um, it had to be codified. It had to be written down in a way that, that game, I mean, if you could try to imagine in 1974 trying to explain what a role-playing game was, before it was even called a role-playing game, by the way, uh, you know, I mean, to this day, it's hard to explain to people what role-playing is all about. And this was someone who was doing it in an era of miniatures and wargaming. And so what he's doing basically is writing down these rules for a wargaming audience, trying to explain how you would play this game for someone who's never viewed a session. A really a pretty amazing and um, daunting task that, that, that I think Gary deserves a whole lot of credit for. It's interesting like hearing you say that. I, I feel like the proper relationship between the two men was, was kind of that of a telescope. You, you can't have function with, without both lenses working in tandem, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. And that, yep. that kind of like brings it all together. And I, I really feel like that's maybe the, the kind of relationship that they had. I, I think that's fair. I mean, absolutely. I, I think it was the right people doing the right things at the right time. I mean, I, that that's the only way you could describe it. And then it, it really took a you know life of its own after it hit the market. And of course, it became to the community of it began, began to develop it in ways that I'm not sure if they ever envisioned. Right. Uh, so it it was really kind of a, a remarkable thing because it was the first time that somebody had put out a commercial game like this anyway, that that was kind of like, hey, here's some guidelines. Now you go, you go design the adventure, you go design the dungeon. It created this this um, 
this community of people that were creators of themselves. It kind of empowered people in that way. So pretty amazing thing. It was, I guess you might say that it was, it was kind of designed to inspire creativity, right? As you researched everything and, and everything started to kind of come together into a narrative, what were some of the surprises, the things that kind of caught you off guard as you discovered them? Boy, I mean, there was an awful lot. Relatively speaking, so little was known about Gary's early life Gary's late life, for that matter. The, the parts of Gary's life that people know relatively well, I guess, were, were more or less the TSR years. And even those, again, are, are still shrouded in lots of mystery in, in many ways. But so, I mean, I think what really shocked me about about his life was just, well, okay, well there were some, I think, direct facts that were just kind of like, wow, you know, the fact that he never had a driver's license, for example, <laughs> was kind of a remarkable it's just a remarkable factor for me just because, you know, he lives in the Midwest, um, knowing that he was commuting an hour and a half each way every day to Chicago from Lake Geneva. He's doing it on the train in those days, which you could do back then. There's no longer a train line that runs that route exactly. So the fact that he got done everything he did without a driver's license, the fact that he didn't finish high school, that might be one of the most remarkable to me. If you consider how literary and sophisticated a game like Dungeons and Dragons is, and to think that it was completed by a guy that didn't finish, that dropped out his junior year of high school. That was a mind blower to me. The fact that, that Gary was, you know, basically having a kid every two years for about a 10 year period while he's wargaming and he's working as an insurance underwriter. So I would say one of the most remarkable things to me about the whole story is are the direct circumstances in which D&D is born. And that is to say, you know, by 1973, when Gary's working on this game with Dave Arneson, I mean, nothing is going right. You know, he's been let go from his job as an insurance underwriter a couple of years earlier. He has five kids. They're living on food stamps. You know, they've got nothing going right. And he's got no money to produce this game, but he's just convinced that it's it's the right thing. So, you know, he brings in his, you know, his good friend, Don Kay, who takes out a, a loan on his life insurance to be able to produce this game. And then they take in this third party, of course, that's Brian Bloom. And the rest is history. But I mean, th- these little nuggets are just so unbelievably important when it comes to uh, not only how the game kind of formed and, and what happened with it, but of course what ended up happening to Gary, right? All of these choices that he was making in the early 70s, a lot of times by necessity, were things that had major consequences and implications for his life come the mid-80s, right, and beyond. And so when you look at that kind of holistically, I, I just think it's an amazing arc. And that was the thing that probably struck me most about him was, you know, I knew a book about D&D is, would be interesting, right? And there's other books about D&D that are tremendous. Certainly John Peterson's Playing at the World, which is, you know, just the absolute Bible of, of role-playing game knowledge when it comes to the facts, the figures, and really how it happened. You know, Of Dice and Men came out uh, a little bit before my book, which is a really excellent, you know, kind of history of, of, of role-playing. So I knew that, that the story of role-playing games and Gary and Dave Arneson, it's all good stuff. You know, the story of TSR, how it all came about, the corporate controversies, the, uh, the satanic panic period, all that stuff. It's really interesting. And, and, but the part and Lorraine that Williams. Lorraine, oh, the Lorraine oh, Williams stuff. Yeah. I have never heard anything good about her in anything written. I, I feel kind of bad. I'm like, I, I would love to see something from her point of view because, like, there, there's not a lot of good stuff about her anywhere. Well, you know, unfortunately, you know, she doesn't. She doesn't give a lot of interviews, and she's very private. Uh, and she, I'm, I'm sure she has a very interesting point of view. I have no doubt in my mind that she does. Uh, you know, like everything else, there's a lot of gray areas in all this stuff. But the thing that really struck me about how amazing the the story is is that it was Gary's personal life paired with all of that much better known controversy and all that, that, that great stuff that made the story really gel. It gave it an arc to me that I was like, wow, 
this guy's personal life is every bit as interesting as all of these corporate things we've been hearing about for years. So that's the stuff that I think really gelled things for me when it came to wanting to tell this person's story. You know, you've mentioned the satanic panic a couple of times, and uh, it, it's something that maybe some of our younger listeners might not have a lot of insight to. You know, from from your perspective researching everything, uh, if, if you wouldn't mind just kind of encapsulating it and how it affected it, just the industry in general, and then Gary in specific, because I, I know from a lot of reading that I've done prior to your book, and, and certainly from your book, it weighed very heavily on him. It was a major, major, you know, milestone in his life. It's hard to point to many things in um, in D and D history or Gary Gygax history that that are more important than um, the, these these particular controversies. Again, this this broader period that people kind of lightly refer to as the Satanic Panic. Uh, but the way it all came about was just you couldn't have planned it. You couldn't write this stuff. I mean, I, again, I was talking about how interesting the corporate story was. You know, what I would say about the story of D and D just just broadly is that. It's every bit as interesting as like Facebook or Apple when it comes to the corporate controversies, but add this this weird controversy around the game where people think the game is psychological, psychologically dangerous and a recruitment tool for devil worship, and it, it becomes way more interesting than those in a weird sort of way to me. The way it all came about, by 1979, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons is out. TSR, the, of course, Gary's company that produces produces the game. Uh, is doing really well. I mean, really well in hobby channels, but I mean hobby channels, right? It's a game you can go to a, a store that sells games or game books or railroads, model railroads, things like that. You can buy this game, but it's not a mainstream phenomenon at all. You know, D&D is still a really esoteric diversion. So just give you some context. So by 1979, TSR is, is doing about, you know, $2 million of revenue. So 1979 money, we're talking about a company that's doing really well, but you're still talking about a small channel. Mm-hmm. And so what happens in August of 1979 is this, this young Michigan State college student uh, named James Dallas Egbert III. Um, he's a computer science student at Michigan State University, and and um, and he's 16 years old, which I think is relevant for a few different reasons. But he's a young kid, so he's he skipped a couple grades. They call him a computer genius, but he's a little guy, and he's again he's hanging out with people that are quite a bit older than him, and I think he's kind of lost. So he's at Michigan State. He's in a summer program there, a summer school there, I should say, taking his classes, and he happens to play Dungeons and Dragons. In August of '79, he disappears from campus mysteriously. No one knows where he's gone. He's just gone. Uh, of course, his parents are, are freaked out about this, and they very quickly hire a private investigator to to figure out what's what's happened to their son. This uh, private investigator from Texas named William Deere comes to East Lansing, Michigan, and starts snooping around James Dallas Egbert III's room, and he finds a couple really interesting things. He finds a bunch of D&D books, for one thing, which gets his attention, and he finds a bulletin board in his room that's got a bunch of thumbtacks placed in a kind of interesting way, right? And Deer, you know, does a few things. He interviews some students. He, find out, he finds out that Egbert is interested in D&D. There's supposedly been some phone calls made to the East Lansing police that suggest that Deer had been playing in the steam tunnels uh, beneath the university, which carry, you know, heat to the buildings, these, these, this labyrinthine um, series of steam tunnels that go literally for miles. And so all these, these things start to kind of crowd uh, Deer's vision. And he comes to this theory after uh, witnessing some, some kids playing this game. He comes up with this theory that this game, this, this odd intellectual game called Dungeons & Dragons is so immersive that it actually blurs the lines between fantasy and reality. His theory is that James Dallas Egbert III has been playing this game so much and so, uh, with so much uh, fervor that he's become his character 
And he's possibly even become lost in these same steam tunnels he's been playing the game. And he may well be hurt. He might be looking for monsters wandering in this delusional fantasy that he's having caused by this game. So this is Deere's theory. And it's just that. It was a theory. And he, uh, he did share that with members of the press. And as you can imagine, the press is always interested in a good story. So people start writing about this game first locally. Egbert disappeared in in mid-August 1979. By the beginning of September, this is New York Times news. This this particular story, this particular theory is being floated and suggested in the New York Times. It's national news now. Here's the amazing part about the whole thing. Egbert surfaces like two or three weeks later. About two weeks later, Egbert surfaces in Louisiana. And he's fine. He had just run away from school. There was no problems. It was nothing to do with D&D. There was no delusions. Egbert had just run away because he was under a lot of academic pressure and stress, probably as a result of being a 16-year-old college freshman. But this idea now that has, that has captured the, that America's attention, that America's imagination, you might say, that the game is somehow psychologically dangerous has really taken root now. And what's happening or what starts to happen is that these but, you know, nervous parents that have been reading these articles now, not only in the New York Times, but in a lot of regional papers at this point, have started wandering into their kids' rooms that happen to play this game and picking up these books. And they start seeing demons on the front of books. And they start, you know, going through this, this imagery and seeing things that look occult to their, to their sensibility. So I think what happened is this, the, the James Dallas Egbert III incident really created a level of scrutiny around the game that it never, never otherwise would have had. And so it didn't take long after this point for people to start looking at this game and saying, oh, my gosh, this look at all these look at all this imagery of demons and stuff. This is a, this might be a recruitment tool for devil worship. So the scrutiny that was created by the Egbert incident basically snowballed into all these other theories uh, and nonsense that really started getting people very worried about this game that really carried all the way through the 1980s. It wasn't um, just D&D. I mean, I, I remember the daycare centers, like the Satanic Panic was a big thing. There's a very lengthy Wikipedia article about it. It, it kind of got caught up in that. It was right at the, the front of, of that wave. But I mean, there, there was a lot of stuff going on in the early 80s about the, the Satanic Panic. It was crazy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, and it was right. And it was certainly not limited to just D&D. But D&D was, was somehow really flagged as a, as a major offender in this. But now, so here's the amazing part about the whole phenomenon. At the time that, that D&D, at the, at the exact time when this Egbert incident is happening, Gary is negotiating an exclusive distribution agreement with Random House. So the game had done well enough in hobby channels that Random House was at least interested in exploring um, wider channels. Right now, Random House at the time was America's biggest publisher. It was no longer a little hobby shops, right? Random House could get you into Toys, and Ru- Toys R Us and Walden Books and, and, and B. Dalton and Crown. So at the same time this is happening, they're making this agreement. Well, everything gelled at exactly the right time. So once all of this, basically this free press the game had gotten through all this controversy, right, all press is good press, the revenue that I mentioned, that was 1979, right, D&D is doing about $2 million, or TSR is doing about $2 million. Well, they'd expected to about double the revenue in that period. Again, they were doing really well, but they quadrupled the revenue over that period. They went from about $2 million to $8 million plus. In that, in about a year's time following the Egbert incident, and like two years later, they're doing thirty million dollars. Wow! And again, it's not coincidence. It's it's pretty clear that the controversy around this whole thing uh, became its absolute best press instrument uh, when it came to sales. 
it's really interesting. I mean, it did create a, a like kind of this dark cloud that that's hovered over the game for many many years. Oh yeah, when I was um, a kid playing Second Edition, people talked to me about the game and were like warning me about it when I was playing Second Edition in high school. And it was it was pretty well debunked, I thought by that point. But even then, it was kind of on the consciousness. Like I, I was shocked when Fifth Edition hit because I I owned a comic shop and a game shop. Right when Fifth Edition hit, that was the first time I, I don't recall hearing anybody bring it up. I think it's taken many, many, many years to shake. I mean, honestly, and it's it's been it's been pretty progressive. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you mentioned second edition. That's a really good example. Not second edition, nineteen eighty nine. Second edition very deliberately does a lot of things um, to to get away from this more occult feeling. I mean, and it's this is well known. Uh, Jim Ward used to talk about how they had really tried to make the game. I think the words he used were more mom friendly or something to that effect. This was still very much on TSR's mind by 1989. I mean, gosh, I was watching an Unsolved Mysteries rerun the other day from 1988 where, you know, Robert Stack basically makes, makes the suggestion uh, in one of these things that this, this young kid kind of joined a cult as a result of, of playing D&D. I mean, it was still very much in the public's mind that this game had been tied to this phenomenon. I mean, obviously the 1985 60 Minutes episode was a huge deal. You know, where Ed Bradley really kind of vilifies the game in a weird sort of way. And it doesn't make Gary or D&D look very good. So this, I mean, again, the same thing that really became this dark cloud over the game was the same thing that really brought the game to the mainstream single-handedly. So a really interesting period in D&D's history for sure. Now, the irony of all this, of course, is that Gary Gygax was actually a, a relatively religious man and was his entire life. And even though this helped the game in the long run, I got the sense certainly from, from your book and, and and a few other things I've read that he just he never got over the fact that it was vilified like that. He was he was downright angry about it. Anger is the right word. I, I think that's the, the best way to put it is that he was he was incensed about it. As a matter of fact, it, it's it, if you ever feel inclined, if you just go watch the 60 Minutes episode, now that's, of course, in 1985, you can hear in Gary's voice, and you, if you just watch him, you can see he's so spit-angry about the whole thing. He's having trouble even articulating himself. I mean, he's so mad that he has to explain this because it's, it's outrageous. You know, he calls it patently ridic- ridiculous, you know, and you can really hear him trying to hold back and contain his emotions because he's really angry about it. And I think anger is the right way to put it. I, I think he never quite got over the fact that not only the game, but he personally was so vilified. And again, even after he was out of this, I mean, late in his life. Uh, the way he would talk about these things was was very pointedly. Um, you know, he was getting death threats uh, around the time of 60 Minutes. He was he had a bodyguard. And one of the reasons he said he had to get a bodyguard was because he was getting things like death threats. So it affected him, you know, very personally. As Gary's kind of life went on, he experienced quite a bit of a downturn when he lost control of TSR. But then he started to construct new systems that were, how should I put this, more complicated, I guess would be the best way to put it. What do you think that he would think of the direction of RPGs today, where complexity seems to be, you know, kind of being shuffled to the side and and narrative is what's being pushed forward? Uh, yeah, I think there's two really interesting parts in that. I mean, the narrative part, Gary would love and always did love. Early versions of the game, I mean, it's interesting because early versions of the game were, were codified in one way. I mean, again, if you go back to the original D&D rule books, I mean, there's things about really kind of codifying almost any way you would find a monster or, you know, I mean, there's even a suggestion in the original books about using a caller, you know, a group caller to to declare actions for the entire group. You know, there's all he was really trying to to get this thing kind of licked and codified early on. But he all the game was always intended to be very narrative focused. I mean, Gary was a storyteller first and foremost 
one of his biggest life ambitions was to be a novelist. You know, he wanted to write fantasy fiction. So that was always a driver, driving force to him. So I think the narrative element, he would have, he would immediately and continue to this day, absolutely love the fact that that people are really getting back to a very narrative push for role playing games. I do think he was getting burnt out on these increasingly complex mechanics that that almost you know after a while it was almost like you were playing a role playing game that was emulating uh, a massively multiplayer online role playing game or or a computer role playing game right they were not only did the game book start to to kind of model that artwork but the games themselves the mechanics almost started to feel like you were playing a a tabletop version of final fantasy right Gary would not have cared for that. Gary always talks about how he hated rules lawyers, first of all. so <laughs> He's a man after my own heart, then. Absolutely. And so this is to say, I mean, that's that's notable, though, because this is to say that that no matter what rule you put down, Gary always realized the narrative and the game was more important than the rule, if that makes sense. Yes. And so I think that's, that's an important distinction there. Now, what's also important in that, though, is that Gary did like to develop new rule sets and do different things. I mean, Dangerous Journeys is a very complex, very wordy rule system that's not a very successful one. And there's some, I think there's some interesting reasons behind that and, and what he was doing at the time when that comes out, whatever it is, 92 or so. You know, again, he's experimenting with some new ideas and some new concepts. I think come the late 90s when he started working on the Legendary Adventures stuff, you know, that uses a skill bundle system. So, I mean, again, Gary is still thinking about new and interesting ways to codify the game. And, uh, you know, but I, I don't think he ever lost... The, the idea of the narrative being the driver of the game. I think that was always his number one. And everything else was subordinate to that, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. Without traveling too deep into any kind of spoiler territory, the book kind of concludes with the conclusion of, of Gary's life. And you kind of drew an interesting parallel to, to one of my favorite movies, so I have to ask about it. Tell me about the, the seventh seal moment. Oh, yes, the seventh seal moment. Okay, well... Well, so, okay, so safe to say, now, now there's one. I'm trying to figure out what I can say without giving the spoiler on this one. Um, well, we'll, we'll so, just say this. Uh, spoiler alert, go ahead and fast forward a minute <laughs> if, if you need there you to. Have it. Okay, so he's, so he's playing chess with, with, with death, right? Well, yes. um, so this is clearly not based on an account. <laughs> right. I mean, so this is a part of the book where you say, okay, you know, here's Mike. Mike is, is, you know, is extrapolating, right? Uh, well, more than extrapolating, Mike is Mike's not fictionalizing this this particular chess it, game that Gary's playing with death. Maybe he got really drunk at the keyboard and while watching Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. So, so here's what was important about it. Um, it occurred to me that uh, a few different things. You know, I mean, I mean, there was a couple of things that really led me to it. I mean, quite honestly, Gary, first of all, loved all games. It was never just an RPG play for him. Gary loved all games. He loved board games or whatever. But chess was his. One of his biggest passions. Gary loved, loved, loved chess. He talked about chess constantly. He played chess at an extremely high level. So that was something that, that came to me quite honestly um, later, obviously very late in his life, where he's literally on his deathbed. And I thought it would be a, a very – and I don't mean it in a light way. I, don't, I certainly don't mean it in a flippant way. I mean, I, you know, I, I definitely wrote that in a very heartfelt way that Gary had been and, and, and did play this this game of chess with death, right? It, it seemed somehow poetic and and right that, that Gary would, would play this game and, of course, lose this game um, eventually, but kind of win the war in a, in a weird sort of way. So that's how it came to me. I mean, it, it doesn't go deeper than that. I mean, I don't, I'm not aware that Gary ever said anything about, about that particular movie 
or anything like that. It was just something that that had um, kind of occurred to me as an interesting, I don't know, parallel. No, it was definitely a good parallel. I I really enjoyed it when I got to it. I mean, being being a big fan of the movie, I really I kind of had a little flutter. I remember you know watching it many many years ago and just being really struck by well many 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 levels of it. But yeah, it somehow seemed very right to close out this incredible epic of Gary's life. Uh, even though we can't know exactly, you know, what happened spiritually or otherwise in his last moments. I, I thought he would approve of the way that that went. I, I hope I'm hope I'm right. We covered all of our questions. Is there anything and, else and you then, want to talk about? Some, yes. You know, simply how much of a of a passion project it was for me. I mean, I, I, I couldn't say I couldn't say enough about the actual process, about making lifelong friends and connections as a result of of really um, committing myself to this project. I mean, it was a pretty magical experience for me. So the fact that this book happened at all was, it was, in a weird sort of way, it was all, it was all gravy. I mean, again, as I mentioned earlier, I did this to fulfill a master's requirement originally, but there was no part of it that was ever checking a box. I mean, when I jumped into this, it was pure obsession. I had never really quite had an experience like it. And that was, uh, you know, that was a three-year process that really took every bit of my extra time, energy, and focus, but you know, I, I'm just I'm thrilled with the way it turned out, you know, and it certainly led to to other you know other things. But I you know I'm really just proud of the piece, and I, I think it I hope it shed light on someone that I think is really really important. No, I, I think it's fair to say that you you accomplished everything you set out to do because the the book is is personal, it, it's poignant, it, it's very emotional, and it it paints. A true portrait of of a man, you know, you you get the the highs and the lows, the good and the bad, and you know Gary, for all of his flaws, as as we all have them, just you know comes across as just a very at his core a very kind person that just wanted to make the world a little better and and give him this gift of of storytelling. Well, and you know, to your point, um, that does remind me about something that that really struck me. Again, we were talking about style and scope earlier, and. The things that really struck me, the things that really got moved me when I heard some of these stories from Mary or Ernie or or Frank Menser or Jim Ward or whoever, I think about that moment. I mean, one of my favorite moments in the book is where he's fired from the um, the Fireman's Fund of Chicago, of Chicago as an insurance writer. Right. This is at a point in his life where his fifth child, Luke, is due in two weeks. Right. So his, his wife is eight and a half months pregnant and he's been fired from this job that supports this growing family. Yeah, I remember Mary telling me this story about how he had bought this jug of Gallo wine. You know, he goes to his porch and he and he puts down this jug and he's, you know, thinking and and it was stuff like that that really led me to this idea that, you know, I, I don't I don't want to write a book about facts and figures, just facts and figures about Gary. Again, and that, again, that's been done in other ways and, and in, in probably in better ways. Again, I mentioned John's playing at the world, John Peterson's playing at the world. It's a wonderful book that's really a, a wonderful traditional nonfiction history. I wanted the reader to really experience these things with Gary. I wanted them to to really experience his his lows and his highs with him because I thought it would help you know the man better. And I remember that story in particular because I remember thinking about the psychology of someone who had lost his job. He had no money as it was. He takes the train home because he doesn't drive. And he stops by the liquor store to buy a gallon of of Gallo wine (laughs) and do some pondering. No, I don't know exactly what was going through Gary's mind at that moment, but I do know this happened. It's a very moving moment for me because it's a man who's desperate, who doesn't know what to do, whose back is against the wall. The walls are closing in. You know, use whatever expression you want. That's something I could relate to. And that's something I I think a lot of people could relate to. And so it's those moments is what really fueled uh, not only the style, but I think the heart of this book was when I heard about these very human moments from this person that created something much bigger than himself. 
uh, that's what I thought became the, the real gold here. Well, you did something right because I've been talking about this book for the last couple of weeks while I've been reading it, and I, I got done, and my my wife picked it up. I saw her starting to get sucked into it while she was reading in bed. We should have gone to bed like an hour ago, and she's just sitting there like churning pages, like can't pry herself off of it. So, it, it, it it's definitely hitting something, and and not just from you know the the gamer nerds like us. Yeah, and I think you said it best when you said the book and the the story both both have intense heart, and I think that really comes across. No, thank you. No, I mean it was a, it was a thrill to write it. It really was. It was an honor, truthfully, to to tell this person's story. I mean, he's he, you know uh, far more important than I'll ever be. And and um, again, that that's what it really was. It was just an honor to be able to to have the to be able to have the honor to tell this story. Well, now we understand you've got some additional projects coming down the pipe. One of them uh, instantly caught my eye. It looks like you're working on a book about Walt Disney. What can you tell us about those? Yeah, um, so I'm I'm working. I've got, I've got two active projects right now. I'm sad to say both are a bit under wraps, but I am working on a book about Walt Disney and um, and Disneyland, the early opening of Disneyland and some of the circumstances around that. There's a very interesting story to be told in there. That's been told in, in some different ways, but I've, I've got a very interesting concept that I think will play pretty darn well. I'm, I'm into that project, probably about a third into that project or so. So you can expect that thing to be out uh, maybe in a couple years. I'll certainly keep you in the loop. The other one, um, what I can tell you about the other one is that I've got a couple collaborators on it. I'm a, it, it let me put it this way. It's uh, it in the role-playing game history space. That's what I can say about it. It's it's not like Empire of Imagination, but it is um, it is something in the role-playing game history space and a very different type of book, uh, one that I'm extremely excited about. Now, that one, that one will be coming out sooner, so, so please stay tuned on that. Um, that should be a 2018 release. Oh, fun. Oh, fantastic. So, yeah, believe me, I'll keep you in the loop on it. It's going to be a, a really, really fun – it is a really fun project. It's very much in uh, the works as we speak. And, and it's about role-playing games, so it's definitely in our belly work. <laughs> it, may, it may well be, yes. Exactly right. If any of our listeners want to go ahead and, and follow you and, and stay in touch with your, your works as they start to produce, how, how can they follow you? Do you have digital media that you use? Uh, do you have a website that you'd like to talk about? Uh, thank you. Yeah. So you can always find me at empireofimagination.com. I, I own that site that's kept up relatively uh, regularly with various updates, news, et cetera, et cetera. So empireofimagination.com is uh, is my website. And uh, you can also find me on Twitter at, at Mike Whitwer. That's at M-I-K-E-W-I-T-W-E-R. Uh, so you can always find me there. And, you know, I, I'm around here and there and everywhere. So, um, yeah, no, please check out the book. Uh, feel free to, to, to check out uh, my various pages and stuff. But, again, I, you know, I just love this stuff. Uh, you'll, you'll always find me hovering around this somewhere. And so I have to ask, do you ever get to play anymore with all this work? <laughs> you know, it's, it's so funny. I, the answer is yes, actually. I'm, I'm very happy to say when I was writing the book, I wasn't playing very much. For a number of years, the, our gaming had kind of dwindled down to basically a, a gaming trip we would do every year from my original gaming group. We call ourselves the Council. Uh, so we'd get together. We'd like rent a house in in like Lake Geneva or Galena, Illinois, or somewhere like that, and uh, we would we'd play for a week, you know. And that was kind of our dedicated gaming. That's about all the gaming we'd get in. My brother continues to be our dungeon master, and those, of course, have gotten harder and harder to have as we have you know a group of, of eight people. And um, increasingly complex lives, but we, you know, we just finished not terribly long ago. We finished, you know, a ten-year-long Star Wars campaign that was epic. By the way, this Star Wars was one that had started in the Wizards of the Coast version and actually ported over to the Fantasy Flight game version in the last couple of years. That's a long story in and of itself, but 
uh, we like the Star Wars role-playing game in any version. Let's put it that way. But the answer to your question is, yeah, we, we still do play. We actually play an ongoing game on Roll20 of, um, of D&D as well. So we've got, you know, a few things going on. It's just hard to play as much as we as we once did. Yeah, being an adult sucks that way. Yeah, it does. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. All right. And for our listeners who want to get a copy of your book, what are what are the easiest ways? Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, any of the main websites. I think Trollor Games still is carrying some copies. Again, one of the easiest ways, because I always like to support our um, brick-and-mortar stores, uh, you should be able to find it to this day at any given major bookstore, Barnes & Noble's, Books A Million, you name it. Um, it's, it's still carried and retailed at all the, the major stores. So that's as good a way to get it as any. And for our listeners, that full title again is Empire of Imagination, Gary Gygax and the Birth of Dungeons and Dragons. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us on the show this evening. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. And, we, you know, we, we both heartily give our, our most emphatic thumbs up on the book. It, it really is just a, a phenomenal piece of work. It's enjoyable to read from, from start to finish, even though, I mean, <laughs> with Gary's trials, there's there's some parts that are tough to read, but uh, it, it's because of, of, you know, the the downturns in Gary's life. And they're, they hit a little close to home. You know, we've all been there. It's really nice to see just how human what would be a legend to us is well thank you so much i'm thrilled that you enjoyed it and uh thank you so much for having me it's been a real pleasure and that brings us to the end of yet another episode of the forgot my dice podcast the end of our teenage years robert so sad so sad that was a good interview Yes, yes, it absolutely was. Very special thanks to our guest, Michael Whitworth. Thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us all about what what I think is probably one of the finest books on the subject I've read so far. Is it the only book on the subject you've read so far? No, I've actually read a couple. Oh, I've read, this is, I think this is my second, because I read the, well, I guess it's technically fifth, because I read all four volumes of the Designers and Dragons, or... There you go. Yeah, whatever, the ones that Evil Hat made, which were quite good. As always, we love the fact that you listen to us, and if it is at all possible for you, go hit up our Patreon page and drop us a little bit of a tip. just helps us to keep the lights going and keep the show going and, and paid for. Don't forget about our contest. Robert, what is the last way that they can uh, jump in on this? Just subscribing to our Patreon, and uh, we'll take all of our Patreon subscribers, and we'll roll randomly or do something, and one lucky winner will get the full set of Savage Rifts books. And these uh, are awesome books, by the way. They are very, very sweet. And again, if you live in the U.S., we will ship them to you. If you don't, you, we will ask you for money to get them shipped to you. And right now, there is odds are just one person. <laughs> so, Scott, Scott, if no one else signs up, buddy, I will see you in two weeks. <laughs> well, speaking of two weeks, we will be back in two weeks with yet another episode of the Forgot My Dice podcast. Lots of new and interesting gaming goodness coming. And It'll be our Chupacabra Con, unless something pops up between now and then. I yes, think. not to mention that we are in convention season, which means we're going to start to see a lot more news than normal. So lots to talk about. So until then, Robert, any final thoughts? Yes. I have spent this entire episode drinking coffee from a Pinkie Pie mug. I don't even know where to begin with Robert's brony fashions. I bought this cup because I thought it would amuse my daughter, and it succeeded. And it's a big... Why would they make a, a mug this large for, like, a children's show? I want to know why anybody would even dream about giving a child coffee in a mug. Oh, no, I fully intended to drink this <laughs> out of this. I just thought my kid would get a kick out of seeing me drink from the pink Pinkie Pie mug. It's great. Well, join... I can't even... Ah. <sighs>
Join us in two weeks for more of our ridiculous hijinks and Robert's deep obsession with My Little Pony. Not so deep. <laughs> I haven't even watched the new season. My kid hasn't been into it, so I haven't I haven't gotten sucked in. I think suck was the key word there. Robert, it's a good party show. on. It's a good show. You hater. <laughs> you hate, no, you do not get a party on. You hate. As always, Robert, party on. Oh, he's dropping it. He's, he's out of the door. That's it. He's left. He's left the room. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you in a couple of weeks when our next episode, episode 20 of the Forgot My Dice podcast. I'm my coffee. I'm going home. <laughs>